in last night's talk, Jill explored and um, we spoke about a lot of the ways that our, our practice in meditation is uh, is about finding balance, an exploration of finding balance, and the way that the the Buddha's teachings that he described it as the middle way, and specifically that uh, middle way between uh, indulgence in sense pleasures on the one hand and self-mortification or um, you know, denial of the body and the senses and the other, finding a middle way in that way. And Jill focused a lot last night on the balance between uh, effort and relaxation and finding what is wise or right effort, the different ways we might explore that, the way that that's an ongoing uh, negotiation, you could say, an ongoing exploration. And this movement towards balance shows up in all kinds of ways in our life and in our meditation practice. We're developing qualities of energy and tranquility, some of which Jill spoke about last night in the talk about wise effort, wise energy. We find a balance between a realistic assessment of the situation we face in our own mind and heart, in our own experience, and and then just seeing ourselves as a problem that we have to fix, going to that extreme. A balance between opening to the suffering that we see in the world, in our own mind, and falling into a state of despair and defeat in face of the magnitude of that, which sometimes seems so huge. And so the, the entire path can really be seen as this movement towards uh, deepening balance. And we could describe uh, the Buddha's realization as the culmination of this movement towards balance, as the mind or heart resting in a state of profound, the deepest possible kind of balance, an unshakable or unassailable kind of balance, you could say. I'd like to read uh, four line, lines from a poem in a collection called the Teragata. Literally, that means, uh, Tera means elder and Gata means verse. So these are the verses or poems of the elders. And in this case, there's a collection called the Teragata in this case, uh, one of those that's the male elders, or these are the monks who were uh, direct disciples of the Buddha at the time he was alive. There's a lovely collection called the Terigata from the early nuns, and there's some beautiful poems uh, and verses in that collection. Uh, some of them have very clear and uh, really great descriptions of a moment of awakening on the, these people who are practicing the same path that we're practicing. So these are the lines I'd like to share tonight. If your mind becomes firm like a rock, and no longer shakes in a world where everything is shaking. Your mind will be your greatest friend and suffering will not come your way. And this one line pointing to this beautiful possibility that we've been touching on this week, that one might have a mind that is one's friend, in this case, one's greatest friend. Such a beautiful possibility. And if at the end of this week you have gotten even some taste of that as a possibility, then your time here would have been very well spent. what, What is the firmness? There's this firmness, firm like a rock. What does this point to? Because the image of a rock can sound kind of... um, uh, immobile or hard. But I think what it's pointing to is more uh, a sense of steadiness and the non-resistant quality of rock that uh, receives the changes that just come. A profoundly deep acceptance of things in that firmness. So we could say that the firmness of a mind that no longer shakes Again, pointing to this quality of balance. We could say a mind that is 
imbued with or rests in a state of profound balance of profound equanimity, this quality of equanimity. And we've spoken about this as one of the divine abidings, one of the Brahma Viharas. And it appears on other lists. I think Jill may have mentioned the, the list of the Paramis. You did last night, didn't you? It's one of those. These noble qualities that the Buddha developed over, it said, countless lifetimes. So this, this quality of equanimity points to a balanced openness, a connectedness that um, is fully intimate and present with life, but avoids the extremes of reactivity, of falling into um, grasping or aversion in relation to what's pleasant and unpleasant. Pleasant. An ability to uh, meet life's changes as they come from a place of some ease and stability, this uh, quality of equanimity. And it's powerful in its own right, and it also supports other very useful qualities that we're developing as we uh, walk this path. So it supports the unfolding of wisdom, because when the mind isn't shaking, is imbued, at least to some extent, with this quality of balance, then there's the possibility that we might actually rest with the truth of the moment long enough for a deeper kind of understanding for insight to actually arise. We can stay with the truth of things without falling into struggle and resistance, without identifying with it. There's this this chance to uh, actually see what's going on. So equanimity supports this possibility. It allows us to see into the conditioned nature of things, that things arise as a flow of causes, causes and the results of those causes, causes and conditions. And so we can see uh, this flow, and it uh, enables us to not take everything quite so personally. There was an article I read a while ago by a teacher, I think probably both of us may have mentioned, named Gil Fransdahl. He runs a meditation center in Northern California. And he was uh, examining this quality and pointed to two words in English that uh, that relate to two different aspects of the word um, or the, the sense of equanimity, of balance. Two words in Pali that we could translate as equanimity. The first of these is the one most of you are probably familiar with, upeka. It's the word we've been using as this uh, divine abiding, this brahma-vihara, upeka. This word literally means something like to look over. And it points to the quality of balance that arises from uh, having a broad view from the power of observation where we can see the big picture without being caught up in the minutia of the details. So you could see that it has with it qualities of patience and understanding that come from having a, a broad view of things. And in the article, Gill compared it to um, the view of, of a grandmother, grandmotherly love for her grandchildren, a grandmother will love her grandchildren, but thanks to the experience she has had with raising her own children, she's less likely to get caught up in the drama of their lives. She has a, a broader vision, at least at times. And so equanimity supports this ability to take a broad view. We don't get so caught up in all the details of the flow of experience, caught up in all of the our thoughts and feelings and all that it seems to be saying about who we are and all of the apparent issues that seem to be there. You can let a lot of that go by. What is it they say in saying in, this, in the States, we don't sweat the little things. Take this broader view. So this other poly word that can be translated as equanimity into English is a longer word, it's a compound of three words, and 
in this language of Pali, often words are created by putting uh, shorter words together to create a different concept. So this one is uh, Tatra Majatata, made up of the words Tatra, which means there, or it sometimes means um, these things, all these things there. Maja means middle. And some of you might be familiar with a text called the Majima Nikaya, the middle length discourses. It's that same root. Maja means middle. And Tata means to stand or to pose. And so combined they mean something like to stand in the middle of all these things or to stand in the middle there, in the middle of all this. And so this points to a different aspect of the quality of equanimity that is this um, ability to stay centered in the middle of changes and all that comes in life. So it, it points to a kind of inner strength or inner stability that lets us negotiate life's changes, it's qualities of calm, confidence, kind of inner integrity. And it keeps us upright. It's the image I like is that it's like um, the ballast in the keel of a of a sailboat. It lets it move and stay stay upright in strong winds. I used to live in a an old um, converted fire station. Old it was old enough that it had been. Um, it was at the time when they were still using horse drawn fire wagons. This was in San Francisco. And it had been converted, the top floor and the bottom floor, into two separate kind of interesting apartments. In the States, a lot of the old fire stations used to have, if they had two floors, they had a hole in the floor and a pole, and they, people would jump and slide down the pole when they were in a hurry. And those places were still there, but they'd been covered over. And um, we got a break on the, the rent, at that time because the owner, the landlord who owned the building was building a, a sailboat, uh, about a 15-meter you know, sailboat in the, um, in the yard next to the building and he had it kind of braced against the side of the, of the building there. And, and so over the years, I watched him in his spare time working on this boat. And at one point, he was... He was gathering lead from old batteries and other places to put down in the keel, in this keel. And I hadn't really been around boats that much. I grew up in the desert in Arizona, and um, I didn't really know. I, I knew they had this, this thing down in the water, but I didn't realize you put thousands of pounds of weight in it. <laughs> he was putting lead, very heavy metal, in there. So it counterbalances the mast. So this inner strength and stability, as that develops in our own mind and heart, it supports this balance. And we negotiate the winds that blow through life. One of my colleagues used, uh, that we, Jill and I teach with sometimes, um, she used an image that I like to borrow. This is a friend of mine named Winnie Nazarko. And she had this great image that... Um, illustrates some of the qualities of equanimity. And that's the image of a very skilled surfer. Are any of you surfers here? Yeah. So uh, a skilled surfer has this um, fluid responsiveness to very changing conditions, right? They're riding waves. Waves are nothing but changing conditions. And there's this direct and very intimate connection to, to the world through the surfboard and into the wave, the movement and change there. But there's this um, spontaneous, relaxed responsiveness to that, right in the middle of that. If you're going to be a successful surfer, you can't be stiff and trying to hold a rigid balance. It's it's a balance grow that's born out of flexibility. So it's not rigid. And it's non-resistant. You can't resist the wave. That's going to wipe you out. So there's a kind of spacious, flexible stability 
within the flow of change right there. So I think it's a great image. I was visiting a, a good, very dear old friend of mine a few years ago who lives um, near San Francisco, south of there, near Stanford University, where he works. And at the time I was visiting, his son was, um, I don't know, maybe 16 years old, a teenager, and he had this um, balance board that looked like a skate, a big skateboard curved up at both ends, and it had these blocks on the bottom, and then there was this wooden roller that it fit onto, and the blocks kept it from shooting off on either side. And maybe some of you, they might have things like this in, in gymnasiums to work on balance. But the idea was that you got on it and you, you stayed and you balanced on it. And, uh, my friend's son, he could just hang out up there and be texting his friends and doing all kinds of stuff. And I got on it and I put it near the wall, you know, and I'm getting myself up on the thing. And, and at first I was trying to find that, point in the middle where it was balanced and try to stay there. And then I realized that the only way I was going to do it was to lower my center of, center of gravity, unfocus my eyes, <laughs> and stay flexible and keep moving. That's what it was about, was responding and staying in, mo in motion. It wasn't about finding a place of balance. The balance came out of responding to the movement there. I think when we explore this and when, when people think of equanimity and, uh, and uh, hearing a talk like this, sometimes think that there's some way that it, when we apply it to our own inner world and experience, that somehow it points to um, some kind of indifference or, or just kind of detachment that doesn't care, that somehow it means that we we aren't touched by life. We're removed or aloof or somehow um, numb. That there's some some disconnection there, and they're worried that that if this if we develop equanimity, we we won't care about anything and we won't feel anything anymore, and life will be just some gray, numb disconnection. But it's really has nothing to do with that equanimity. Real equanimity is fully connected. It's actually based on a radical intimacy and connection with our life, but it's it's connected to a very deep acceptance of the truth of the way things are. And so we're intimately connected, but we're not being pushed and pulled around by all that's happening. We're not at the mercy of the reactive mind. So we're open, connected, and free. That's a very different thing than being indifferent or insensitive or not feeling anything. And if, as this quality of equanimity becomes stronger and develops through our practice, it frees up a lot of energy that allows us to respond to life from a place of uh, wisdom and balance that isn't there if we're being pushed and pulled around by the reactive mind. So you could say we free up internal energy for responding to um, life, to what's external. And so when equanimity is strong, our wisdom can function. It's free. And, and we can have a, a broader vision and, and there's a wise discernment that can arise that lets us really see what's going on and decide based from the place of wisdom and balance whether or not there's something to do, to act or not to act, what to, what's to be done, what's to not be done. And we're not just uh, acting out our conditioning. We're not at the mercy of just knee-jerk habits of mind. We can see what's appropriate. So it's really the opposite of anything like apathy or disconnection. And so it does give us a real strength and also a kind of protection as we navigate life, as we navigate what are called the uh, worldly winds, the eight worldly winds that are always blowing through our life, often in very unpredictable ways. And these are classically said to be uh, pleasure and pain and praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Um, what's the fourth one? 
Mm-hmm. And gain and loss. And you know, it, blame comes sometimes when we're just doing our best to try to be helpful. And gain sometimes arises out of a situation of apparent loss. These things, these kinds of changes uh, are constantly, these winds are constantly blowing through our life. And so equanimity gives us um, a way of negotiating that from some place of stability, this inner strength. Because change is the one thing in life that we can rely on being there. And everything arises out of causes and conditions that in great part are outside of our direct control. We have some ability to direct the shape and the flow of our life, but so much that happens is not of our choosing. And so if we can't gain some greater control and get things to stay the way we want them and, and put a put a stop to all this change, this arising and passing of things, if we can't, if that's not what we're, learning here, then maybe at some point we start to realize, oh, we need a different strategy. And so, going back to this image of of a surfer, we will find out, or it might occur to us, that the way to um, find some sense of ease, empowerment, balance within the world of changing conditions is by learning how to ride the waves of changing to harmonize with the impermanence rather than struggling against it. So just as um, a surfer rides the waves and the changes there, we ride the changes of life balanced on equanimity. So there's different ways we might think of strengthening, developing this quality of mind. But one way is to is to look at... Um, qualities that that support its arising, ways that we can create the conditions for it to arise and strengthen. So I'll mention just a few of these. We might think of all kinds of things, but I'll mention a few. So we've been stressing, uh, talking about pointing to uh, the way that uh, attention to how we're living, our conduct, to ethical conduct, how important this is in our practice and the great emphasis and and, uh, importance that the Buddha placed on living a life of integrity and uh, orienting one's life around non-harming to uh, to what extent that is possible. And when we live and act from a place of integrity with this orientation around not intentionally adding to the suffering of the world through our actions then there's this inner strength that supports equanimity that comes from this sense of blamelessness. Because if our actions are um, causing harm, the mind will not be able to settle. It'll be whirled around with uh, worries and remorse and regrets. And we won't come to balance when that is happening. But when uh, we live with... uh, deep integrity and our virtue is clear and strong and our our focus is around non-harming, then we have this sense of um, we can feel blameless. I don't know if one of us already used this image, but it's said that one is able to uh, come into any group of, of people, come to any assembly and feel um, a sense of ease and blamelessness because our actions are are based in this arena of uh, integrity. And there's a, a deep uh, self-respect that can grow out of this. <clears throat> it's powerful support for this balance of mind, of equanimity. When we spend time in meditation and we develop qualities of calm and concentration, steadiness of mind, samadhi, to some extent. This also supports the development of equanimity because um, it's 
this calm non-distraction of mind gives us that ability to not be blown about so much by the winds of change. The mind can rest in a place of non-distraction, not pulled and pushed around so much when calm and concentration are strengthened. And, And this stability allows the mind, as I said before, to um, actually connect with life long enough that we'll see below the surface of things and we connect with how it really is instead of being lost in all our ideas about how it's supposed to be or how it should be. We stand on reality, you could say, from a place of ease and balance. Another, I think, really important, powerful way, and I've been encouraging many of you to do this, and all of you in the evenings who come to the chanting, is to intentionally reflect on and appreciate our good qualities, our strengths, the things that are are good, and to reflect on our good, uh, wholesome actions, good things that we may have done, times of generosity and kindness in our life, to actually bring these to mind and really let them in. Because we'll spend a lot of time seeing what's not right and all of our flaws and ways that we don't measure up to some ideal we might have that's very obvious to us. And we tend to dwell on that a lot. We focus on all that's not okay or not right or needs improvement And we overlook or diminish our goodness. We so often do this. And it's not pretending that we're perfect. There's room for improvement or we wouldn't spend time on a retreat like this. But we don't overlook the goodness. And this brings us a a more balanced view. We actually can see it as a way of balancing our view. Probably the single most uh, profound and uh, ultimately liberating support for developing the balance of equanimity in our minds and hearts is uh, opening to and uh, deeply starting to see into the truth of change, of impermanence. Really seeing into this aspect of nature of all things, of all experience. I was talking about this a bit this morning, the more universal characteristics of all experience. And the Buddha placed great importance on this understanding, on the deepening understanding and, uh, you could say, opening to this truth in ever deeper ways. I'll read a few quotations from uh, some of the some of the uh, suttas. Fruitful as is the act of giving, yet it is still more fruitful to go with a confident heart for refuge to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. I spoke about these qualities of wakefulness, of um, opening to um, the, the truth of nature, you could say, the way it is, and uh, refuge in, in, our, uh, in our potential for understanding. That's more fruitful. And to undertake the five precepts of virtue. So our training in non-harming, we undertake here that exploration. And as fruitful as that is, as fruitful as it is to um, uh, turn towards a deeper kind of refuge and to uh, undertake a life of harmony, an orientation around non-harming. Yet it is still more fruitful to maintain loving kindness in one's being for only as long a time as it takes to milk a cow. And as fruitful as that is, yet it is still more fruitful to maintain the perception of impermanence for only as long as the snapping of a finger. That's an interesting comparison there. It's better to live a single day of life perceiving how things rise and fall, perceiving change, 
Better to live a single day perceiving this than to live a hundred years not perceiving it. That's another, that's a strong statement. It's better to live for a day deeply understanding the truth of change than to live for a hundred years and not ever see this. And in many of the uh, these ancient texts, there are descriptions of the moment of someone uh, awakening in the way the Buddha is said to have uh, or realized uh, this enlightenment, this awakening. And it's, it's often, almost always, it's described in terms of um, a perception of change, of impermanence, something like this. The stainless eye of the Dhamma arose thus. That which is subject to arising is also subject to passing away. That deeply understanding that opens, turns the mind towards release. Now we hear uh, all things are impermanent or everything's changing. You know, we hear it a lot if we hang around places like retreat centers and, and it can become a kind of, uh, you know, something to say and a philosophical stance that we might adopt or entertain and, and we can fall into a kind of superficial relationship with this staying on the surface of things. I think if we approach it in a skillful way, then we can see meditation as a, a training. We often call this, Jill and I both have used this word of training the mind and heart. And now what we're training is this quality of mindful awareness. We're training in that. It's the training in mindfulness or in awareness. And over time, as we develop this um, and incline the, the mind and heart to rest in awareness, as we live a more aware life, we start to trust this quality of awareness more than the passing show of changing experience. And this uh, process, through this process unfolding, we start to see things on a, a level below the everyday way we look at things, below the surface appearances of things. And as I was talking about this morning, we are we train our focus more to uh, the what's more universal or common, these characteristics of change, of of a certain unreliability or fragility, undependability of um, changing things because they don't last. And we start to see that it's uh, happening, that it's a causal flow. It's not amenable to our will. We can't control things and get them to be only one way, only the way we want them to be. So we start this, this doorway of impermanence is the way into seeing these more universal qualities or characteristics of all experience, all of life. And we see this on all on different levels. So we maybe start on uh, things that are more obvious, you know. I mean, if we went up to anybody anywhere and said, do things change? It's unlikely anybody's going to say anything but yes. You know, there's, it changes from day to night and back to day again. And the seasons change. It's changing now from spring, winter to spring and heading towards summer in a while. The seasonal changes and, and all these things are, are pretty obvious in common sense. Yes, things change. I don't think anyone would argue that with us. We see the way that our bodies change. None of us are as young as we used to be. And in our practice, we see things in this way. We see the changes in the seasons and in all aspects of life in the world around us, in our own minds and bodies. But we also start to see the truth of change on a much more profound level, you could say, on a deeper level. And so we start with things that are more obvious. And for example, on retreat, we encourage, uh, we've been encouraging you to, to really um, rest the attention, ground the awareness in the body, 
in great part, bringing attention to um, the way the the changing postures, bringing awareness to the body as it sits and stands and moves around and reclines and everything in between those different postures. And, you know, there are times when we sit still in meditation, but most of the rest of the day we're in motion. It's constant change of postures. And these lead us then towards deeper understandings and connections to change. So then we, we start to uh, drop into the direct experience of body on a more subtle level, a level below the concepts of bodily parts, for example, a more subtle experience of impermanence. So we start to see that our direct experience of body is this flow of changing sensations that arm and hand and head and torso and foot are in a certain way a concept. And we can't actually experience that directly, but we do experience a flow of changing sensations, the shifting dance of hardness and softness and warmth and coolness and pressure and vibration. And as we start to see this direct experience of materiality of the body, we'll see there's no... Um, nothing stable in there at all. It's constantly shifting and changing. Nothing lasts. And the closer we look, we see it doesn't last for any length of time at all. And there are times in meditation where our direct experience is just this flow of sensations and the, the concept of body may even disappear for a while. We just feel this change and dance of uh, arising and passing sensations, that flow. We start to notice the insubstantial, fleeting nature of thoughts in the world of our, our mental energy and activity. It's a profound thing to see the arising and passing of a thought. Most Most of us, most people in the world, don't know that there's anything outside of thoughts. Never see that. It's no small thing. And we see how they come and go. How whole universes are created in this, in the world of our thoughts. And we, we're lost, we inhabit the, some story, some drama, and then we wake up and psst, it's just gone. And it seems so real, and that was our world, and, and then it just disappears. It's so insubstantial in, in its essence. And so we start to see that body and mind are just this constant flow and flux. But so much of the time, once in a while we tune into it, and we open to it, but we get so lost in it all. We see it, but then we get lost it's kind of amazing how we get lost in in the world of all of our sense contacts and especially in the world of the mind and our sense, our thoughts and our emotions. All that it seems to be telling us and all it seems to mean about who we are and we, we get fascinated by it. So fascinated. And and we lose sight of the, this fleeting, insubstantial nature of it all. And we attribute a kind of reality to it that it doesn't actually have, at least for periods of time. It reminds me of this time um, when I was at the beach. I was teaching at a meditation center north of San Francisco, California, where I used to live in the States. And and my friend uh, that I was teaching with, we had part of a day off and we'd gone to the beach and it was a very, very windy time in the winter. And um, the the wind had created these really big, powerful waves and they were crashing onto the shore and because of the quality of the water, it was creating a lot of this foam um, that was building up on the sh- uh, above the where the waves were crashing. Maybe some of you have seen that here. And... Um, there were these huge blocks of this sea foam. They were building up and they were, you know, as big as a big piece of furniture. And and the wind was so strong and the wind was blowing 
kind of along the, the, the length of the beach and we were walking along and these huge chunks would come hurling down the beach at us. You know, and they looked like an iceberg. <laughs> they were big, some of them, big as a big chair. And, um, and then they would just, just, they would just disappear. There was nothing really there. It was just hair and a little bit of protein or something, I guess. But these big chunks would come hurling at you and, and they just go away and there was this little damp spot on the sand or something. And they seemed like so solid. I thought it was such a great image of, of the way that we create this solidity of, of something in the mind. And then it just disappears in an instant. And we get so caught up in all the apparent issues and, and these fabrications in the mind. And there's so much that we don't like and so much that we like and so much we want and so much we don't want. And, and it just seems like we've, there must be something we have to do about it. And, and we get so swirled up in it that we overlook the fact that it's just constantly changing. There was a, a teacher in Thailand, a, a, a lay woman named Upasika Ki Nanayon, and she was a highly, highly revered teacher who died in the 1970s, I think, or in the early 80s. And there's a beautiful little book called Pure and Simple that some of you may have heard of. That um, it's a collection of teachings. Very, um, very. She was a strong, no-nonsense teacher. And this is a quotation from that book, pure and simple. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing that you can latch onto as having any real essence. Everything just disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually, there aren't many issues. There's really only arising, remaining, passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's really only just this, arising, remaining, and passing away. It's like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. So we get caught up in the contents of our, our mental world and we, we overlook the fact that it's just a flow of change. And, and then we, we identify with it, this latching onto it in Upasaka Key's words. And this latching on, identifying with it, leads to this feeling that there are all kinds of issues there that we have to deal with, all that we have to fix or try to control in some way. But if we take a step back, soften our view, our gaze in a certain way, relax into the flow, we'll see that it's just this flow of change. And we can look simply at the present moment as it arises and passes and just let it be, let it go. We don't have to pick any of it up. This is uh, continuing that quotation from uh, Upasaka Ki. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present arising and passing away right before your eyes, and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go. That's when you gain release. So this um, opening to, deepening connection to the truth of change gets more and more refined as our practice uh, unfolds and as our meditation deepens. And there are times when our perception of change becomes so fine that objects start to arise and pass away 
more quickly than, than our, our awareness can actually uh, keep up with them. We see, start to see just how quickly this change is happening. It can almost be kind of dizzying at times. It's like this rushing stream of change. Not all the time, but there are times when the mind opens in this way. We see it in this way. Sometimes we even start to see that we're all we're noticing is the endings of things. That the beginnings and the middles, the arisings, the remainings seem to uh, be less clear. We're not seeing that so much and we just see this flow of change in terms of things disappearing, dissolving. They seem to disappear almost as soon as they arise at times. And, and it can be, it can feel a little in, in unbalancing or even a little scary sometimes. But But if we stay steady with the practice through this, The factor of equanimity, we start to, this inclines toward this release and letting go, as Upasika Ki was pointing, what she was pointing at there. The factor of equanimity starts to strengthen as a result of this uh, letting go. And it becomes very powerful and strong at times. And at, at, in, in moments for periods of time, uh, we open to what's sometimes called high equanimity. It's the most subtle and profound manifestation of this quality of equanimity. It's called um, equanimity regarding uh, formations. Is one way it's expressed regarding all that arises in the mind and heart. Sometimes it's called six-limbed Equanimity because it arises at all six of these sense bases or sense doors that we've been talking about. Equanimity at any contact in the body and mind. And so the mind and heart are open and fully present and connected with life, but they're not pushed and pulled around by the flow of pleasant and unpleasant and the changing flow of experience. The mind is in a state of uh, of profound balance. It's not moved by that, and there's no way for attachment or resistance to arise at those times. There's no space for that. And it's said when this is really highly developed and at a profound place, it's it's similar to the mind of a fully enlightened being. This deep balance, a kind of perfect equipoise. And it may not last, but we touch into and taste this at times. Sometimes the mind opens to that kind of deep equanimity. There's a beautiful description on the night of his awakening, the the Buddha to be sitting under the Bodhi tree in this description of that time. It said that he was assailed by the armies of Mara. You could say he had a really bad multiple hindrance attack, you know, restlessness and doubt and all these these energies showed up. And and in the, the mythical description there, it was like assailed by all kinds of weapons. And his um, his power and stability of mind were so strong that they turned into flowers. And then assailed by temptations of every possible kind of sense pleasure offered. And finally, um, assailed by da- doubt. And it's said that the Great One's mind was not moved. He was unassailable. None of these things could shake the mind or move it. And it's this exquisite balance manifested uh, or described in this, uh, uh, in the Buddha's night of enlightenment there, this image of that. This exquisite balance of high equanimity that um, you could say it prepares or inclines the mind towards the deepest kind of letting go and the release that we could say is the fruition of the Buddha's past, the release into the deepest kind of peace. Now we don't start there. That's the culmination of our training in a certain way and we can't decide to have that kind of equanimity or will it into existence. It arises out of 
this process of, of training the mind and this deepening uh, understanding and in part supported certainly by this deepening perception of change and impermanence. And we're learning how to uh, open and allow and how to let things be. We do get tastes of this along the way. And as awareness strengthens and equanimity follows, it follows in its wake. And, and we see that we are living with, that our vision is imbued with greater stability and independence and freedom. And that this inner, inner strength, we have this ability to see things in a broader way, that aspect of equanimity, and this inner strength and stability also uh, arises and we can stay balanced in the face of change in the middle of all things. And this, um, this inclines the heart to release and letting go and to freedom. So I'll end this evening with a quotation from a, a teacher, one of the founders of the Meditation Center in Massachusetts where Jill and I teach, uh, named Sharon Salzberg. Some of you may have heard of her. She writes a lot about uh, loving kindness and the other Brahma Viharas. And this is from a book of hers. To have the radiant, calm, and unswayed balance of mind that we call equanimity is to be like the earth. All kinds of things are cast upon the earth, beautiful and extraordinary things, ugly things, frightful, lovable things, common and rare things. The earth receives it all and quietly sustains its own integrity. It is a state of peace to be able to accept things as they really are. This is to be at home in our own lives. We see that this universe is much too big to hold on to, but it is the perfect size for letting go. Our hearts and minds can become that big and we actually can let go. This is the gift of equanimity. So we'll just have a moment of quiet now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.